Paul say because of the angels like that? Just throwing it out there like it's supposed to make total sense to all of us. Um, a brief review might be helpful. Prayer is going to be more helpful. So we're going to start with one and then go to the other. Okay, let's pray again. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would illuminate this passage to us, that you would give us your Holy Spirit so that our hearts can receive what he would have us know. We pray that we would be humble before your word, not coming to it in order to uh, to twist it or to uh, impose our own understanding on it, uh, but we want to receive. We're hungry people, and you are the bread of life. Uh, so, so give us what we need to know here so that we can be completely satisfied in you, Jesus, and so that we can look like your church and behave like your body and resemble Christ. That's what we're asking for in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, the brief review uh, that may be helpful, Corinth, you will recall, was a mess. And Paul is writing a letter to help with the cleanup. The church in Corinth was behaving a whole lot like the world, and they were proud of it. They were rejecting Paul's leadership and wisdom, really rejoicing in their independence from the apostles. Uh, the city of Corinth, it's been said, was kind of like the worst parts of San Francisco and Las Vegas rolled into one just perverted, licentious city. And the Christians in Corinth were outdoing themselves to show themselves to be people of their time and place. We are, we are members of this community. In fact, they were behaving in such ways that even their neighbors in Corinth, the unbelievers, were saying, wow, those Christians, they'll let you just do anything. You can go back to chapter 5 for that. The Corinthians, it seemed, valued their independence a great deal. Independence from social norms, independence from apostolic leadership, uh, independence from each other. They don't want to have to uh, you know, do anything to, to serve another person in their church. The Corinthians, it seemed, um, didn't want an apostle telling them what to do. They didn't want a law to tell them what to do. They wanted to be able to serve themselves and rejected the idea that they might be responsible for one another. And this showed itself in many ways that Paul has been addressing in Corinthians. The early in the book, it was sectarianism. They were forming all these little cliques and and proto-denominations, um, when your priority is being right, and that's a higher priority than being united to the body of Christ, you divide into little sections. Paul rebukes them for this. When it comes to matters of conscience, the Corinthians were used to saying, I have my rights. If that offends you, you can leave. And Paul rebukes them for that. When it came to communion, they were using it as an opportunity to get whatever food they could get even if it meant someone else got none. There was a serious irreverence in nearly all of their practices. Paul rebukes them for this. In the next chapter, we're going to start talking about spiritual gifts, and we'll see that the Corinthians' idea of a good church is each person drawing attention to themselves and what they're good at. There was no order, because selfishness of this kind will always breed chaos. A little side note, since we're going to be studying through spiritual gifts next week and on through the next several weeks, pray for me, maybe a little extra than you usually do, because one of my favorite things to teach on, and it is a subject that almost inevitably invites certain kinds of spiritual warfare. Uh, so just know that I'm inviting you in, we're all in this together, and that's where we're heading, okay? So, so onward, Christian soldiers, let's go. Um, so Paul is rebuking them for things left and right. Um, and, and the larger context that I just shared matters for our, our understanding of this tricky passage in chapter 11. 
Why does any of this need to be talked about? Because the behavior and the, the dress of the members of the Corinthian church were the result of their rebellious hearts and their tendency towards chaos and away from a humble order. In so many ways, 1 Corinthians is a book about reordering the crooked thinking of the Christians in this city. And we need to be humble in coming to passages like this, since it may be that we need reordering as well. Now, obviously, there are cultural considerations, not just in this chapter, but all throughout Corinthians. Like, none of us really have to deal with eating food sacrificed to idols at grocery stores, right? And so we had to find the principle of that and find out where's the application for us here. Where are the eternal truths that supersede and undergird the specific application that Paul is talking about? So we have to wade through these things that are particular to Corinth, that don't cross over to 21st century North Fork. But we also need to be careful not to dismiss the deeper truths, the inspired eternal truths, merely because the application of them differs slightly from culture to culture. Because it's easy to read a passage like this and be like, oh, it's about head coverings. So that really has nothing to do with me and my cultural context. It's not about head coverings. It's about humility, and it's about authority. So let's come to the passage with reverence and humility that Paul is, the same kind of reverence and humility that Paul is encouraging in the church. Start there in verse 2. Paul lays the sarcasm on thick. He says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. If you've been reading Corinthians, you know this is factually untrue. The only way I can understand this verse is to assume that Paul is being sarcastic. They didn't remember Paul in all things. They wanted to get rid of Paul and all things that he said. Uh, they, they did the opposite. They discarded Paul and his opinions. They didn't keep the traditions just as he delivered them. That's why he had to teach them and no other church, apparently, how to have a communion service. Everyone else had taken that tradition and then followed it. And he's like, okay, Corinth is the one place that we need to actually spell this out on paper. And we're glad that he did. He, he had just told them in verse 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. They needed to know this because they had not been imitating Paul or keeping the traditions that he had delivered to them. But we do need to remember, too, that this 1 Corinthians is actually Paul's second letter to this church. So when he talks about the traditions and the example, these are things that they know, knew that we don't, um, which means this conversation about head coverings, is probably a conversation that we're coming to into the middle of, which can be disorienting. Um, and we, we jump right into it, into the middle. Verse 3, it says, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. These are probably things that Paul and the Corinthians had already been talking about in their correspondence and in person. One detail that might be helpful here, the word woman and wife are the same in Greek. As much as it's talking about men and women, which it is, in some of these verses, it seems clear that it's specifically married men and their wives that he's addressing. And we'll try and find out which of those verses uh, need to be interpreted in that light. The key word in this verse and through the, the whole passage is the word head. Here he says, the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. The head of Christ is God. Ephesians 5.23 where he writes on marriage and, and to that church, he says, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is savior of the body. So the cross-reference shows also that, you know, we're, we're talking about 
uh, relationships and in marriage. Um, the word head indicates source and authority. These are two parallel but slightly different concepts that are both kind of carried in this word head. As to source, think of like headwaters of a river. Okay, the head is the source. It's where the river begins. The head, in this case, provides for and gives identity to that which it is head of. A simple reading of this verse in those terms is that God made man, Adam, and then made woman out of man. Now, of course, we're talking about more than that. Um, but if we're to understand head in terms of source, then Paul is saying that the head is meant to provide for uh, that which he is head of. Christ provides for man. Man imitates Christ by providing for a woman. I would argue that there is something of natural law here, something that is central, not just to a particular culture or religion, but to the order of creation and what it means to be human. Uh, men are meant to provide for women and children. So headship, it has that idea attached to it about provision and care. But the word head in Scripture, is never used without the idea of authority, which goes kind of an, another step. And that can make people uncomfortable because there is a wrong-headed understanding that authority is the antithesis of equality. It is not. The line of thinking goes, I'm sure you're familiar with it, either you have equality and no authority headship, or you have authority and submission, but then no equality. That's wrong. Read verse 3 in reverse, okay? The head of Christ is God. That should solve all the questions about whether authority and submission is about equality or value or anything like that. The head of Christ is God. This is a biblical truth. Christ himself says, my father is greater than I, and yet he is equal with God and is, in fact, God himself. The authority or headship we are talking about is not an issue of dignity, worth, or ability. It is an issue of order, even as there is order in the triune Godhead. Godhead. Hey, there's that word again. When headship is discussed, there's also the idea of submission, which makes people uncomfortable too. When you realize that the example of headship is not something borrowed from the natural world, uh, or from the animal kingdom or something, and it's not this cultural idea that is from ancient civilizations like the Egyptians or Babylonians or the Romans or something like that. When you realize that the example for headship given by God is God. That's the example. It's God himself. God the Father's authority over God the Son. And the example of submission is the Son of God submitting to the Father. That should put the whole concept of authority in its proper place. There is no room for tyranny in this equation. Why do we have order? Because God is ordered. This Trinity-based authority formula also folds in the head as source idea. The Father who is head of Christ gives all things to his Son. John 3.35. He gives all things. That defines his headship. To be under authority and to do this well is to be like Jesus. To be in authority and to fulfill that role with generosity and godliness, is to be godly. Now, these are the principles. These are the, the theology behind the practice. I do believe that these issues of headship are not things that are unique to Corinthian culture. 
Um, they're not things, therefore, that we can just easily dismiss as behind us or beneath us because we're so modern and developed. The Trinity still exists with authority and submission. And even though we are fallen creatures, we are still made in the image of God, and we function the best when we most resemble God himself. The principles of authority and submission headship still stand. If I can't get it any clearer, the issue of male leadership in the home and the church is biblical and not to be dismissed as a relic of times gone by. It is sewn into the fabric of creation, of humanity, of the new creation, and of, mar of marriage itself. Because these are things that are made in the image of God himself, creation, humanity, marriage, these are things to resemble God. Now the application of the principles, how does it work? What does it look like? Those are going to be slightly different in different times and places. And that's what we get into in the next passage. In verse 4, it's, he says, Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Okay, so Paul says that man praying with his head covered dishonors his head. His head, we were just told, was Christ, which complicates things. Because <laughs> either he's saying that he's dishonoring his literal head right here, and he should just be ashamed of himself, or he's dishonoring Christ, which takes things up a notch. Now, we know that we've made a shift from principle to practice here. We've made a shift from a universal conviction to a cultural context. Because Paul is dealing with something here that is clearly specific to Corinth. How do we know it? How do we know that it's really, really clear? Because Jewish men prayed with their heads covered. Uh, now, the little kippah or yarmulke, that wasn't a thing yet. But we read in Scripture about the high priest wearing a turban. The priests prayed with their heads covered. So I, I don't think this was dishonorable to the priest's head, the physical one or the spiritual one. So Paul, in mentioning this, is talking about something that wouldn't he wouldn't have said to priests, Levitical priests getting saved. They would have a completely different context. But the Corinthians would have been able to pick up what he's laying down. Better than we are right now, probably. It seems apparent that the head coverings Paul is talking about are symbols of authority and submission that would have been easily recognized in the church in Corinth. The people in Corinth would have been able to read the language of these symbols. In verse 10, he says as much. He spells it out. He says, the head covering is a symbol of authority. The man praying or prophesying with his head covered was not the same issue as, you know, wearing a ball cap in church. Some of you might think that's rude or impolite, but I don't think any of you would see a man with a hat and then draw the conclusion about whether or not he is in authority or under authority, right? In a similar way, we see people with earrings and don't really think a whole lot about it, but a Jew in the ancient world would have known that a person with one earring was a slave, a bondservant, actually. These are things, they're symbols that they would have been able to read that we don't, we don't know the language. They're things that they would have uh, been able to recognize, and we might need a little help. Um, verse 5 through 7, it says, But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. More, more complicated things here. Okay, Every woman who prays or prophesies, let's recognize first, for something important here, women prophesied in the church in Corinth. Now we'll get to more of the details around this when we get to chapter 14, but it's okay to notice right now 
that Paul's admonition elsewhere that women are to be silent in church is also something we have to take uh, with an awareness of the current cultural context. It's not a universal or total prohibition. It seems it's, it's impossible, actually, to prophesy without speaking. It seems likely that the prayer Paul mentions here is public prayer, which is speaking in church. Because to apply the head covering rule to private prayers would mean men and women would be cut off from private prayer, which we are to do without ceasing, based on what is or isn't on their head, which I don't think anyone has ever believed, ever. What Paul is concerned with here is order in church practice and order within the Christian community. And what are people who are able to read the symbols, what are they reading in your behavior or, in this case, in your dress? When Paul says elsewhere that women should learn in silence, we can compare that to passages such as these and say, okay, the real issue here is godly order. Paul is against disruption. He is for submission and authority within a godly structure that is modeled after the Trinity. In a similar way, we come to this passage on head coverings and understand very little, but recognize at least that these head coverings apparently meant a whole lot to the people in Corinth, way more than it means to us. The issue then was less of what was on top of your head as it was about honoring authority and functioning under godly leadership and within the godly leadership structures that the Lord has put in place. The head coverings were the practical outworkings of interior issues. Now, when you hear this topic discussed, you'll hear sometimes in reading commentaries and stuff that the issue of like shaving your head, it's like, oh, it's better if women just shave their head. And you'll read that prostitutes in Corinth, which Corinth had plenty, um, had shaved heads. You'll find you'll, this information telling you that Corinthian prostitutes shaved their heads or wore their hair short. There's no historical evidence for this at all. In fact, you can trace back trace it back to the guy who made this up in the like 200 years ago, and everyone's been quoting him since. Okay, it's false. We'll just put that one to rest right now. But it was common in ancient and not so ancient cultures for women who were being punished for adultery to have their heads shaved as part of the punishment. It seems that this would have been known and recognized. I know this is a little out of order, but skip down to verse 13 here. He says, judge among yourselves. In other words, you can see this plain as I can. Just look. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. This appeal to judge among themselves shows us once more that there was something cultural that could be agreed upon in Corinth. They could arrive at these conclusions themselves. Long hair, it meant something to them. Short hair meant something. And even if these were cultural norms only, that doesn't mean that they were nothing. The head covering was, as verse 10 says, a symbol of authority. For the woman then to remove the symbol of authority was much more than breaking a dress code. It was a somewhat shocking claim, public claim, of independence and autonomy and even authority over her husband or church leadership. For a woman to remove her head covering, which in Eastern cultures would have been worn pretty much all the time. You pretty much always have a head covering. It wasn't like you come to church and then cover your head. Your head was covered, you know, going out of your house. For, for a woman to come to church then and then remove that head covering was for her to begin undressing in public. 
and claim to any observers, I am in charge of me. Now, I know that's not what it would be for you to take off your hat, but that's the issue that Paul is dealing with. That's the level of importance that this would have taken. If all of this seems a bit mysterious, let's consider one symbol that we still honor, because we're not, we don't consider ourselves very symbolic uh, or symbolically literate, maybe, but we, we have wedding rings still. Okay, That's a symbol that everybody gets behind, and we kind of agree that we know what it's talking about. A wedding ring is a symbol of commitment. Now, if you have a wedding ring, how do you think your spouse would feel if you intentionally remove that wedding ring every time you go out by yourself? That could mean something. Go back to men wearing head coverings. It's not just the issue of wearing hats in church. The head covering was an issue of authority. The problem was that men were stepping back from positions of authority and under a pretense of false humility were saying, no, I'm not, I'm not here to lead. I'm not in charge here. And we know that was a problem in Corinth because when you had the big sinful issue in chapter 5 about a man who was having an affair with his stepmother, there was no man in the church who took the authority to condemn such a grievous sin. All of them put on the head coverings. They're like, oh, no, I'll just submit. Too much of it. Okay. So that when, when we think of symbols in terms of the, the wedding ring, maybe, you can see people are coming to church and saying and casting off all previously made commitments, all social norms pertaining to godly authority or submission. And they were saying, I'm free in Christ. And Paul says, no, you're not. <laughs> and those words don't mean the things you think they mean. Now in verse 7, go back to verse 7. He says, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Uh, there must be something culturally specific about the head coverings that Paul is talking about that would have been re easily recognized in Corinth. But the underlying principles of authority and order, authority and submission, is one that Paul, he bases it on creation rather than culture. Paul refers back to creation where man was created first in the image of God. And woman, no less in the image of God, was still made from the rib of Adam and was, in this sense, from man. Referring also to Genesis, Paul says that the woman was made for the man. Now, the man is Adam, and Eve was created to be his helper. Now, just in case you're not quite tracking with Paul's arguments here, don't worry, it gets way worse. You ready? Okay, verse 10. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Yeah, because of the angels. This is the second time in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, that Paul has brought up angels in a way that just makes us scratch our heads. Remember in chapter 5 when he said, in just his offhanded, kind of casual way, don't you know that we will judge angels? And every Christian everywhere went, well, I know now, but I did it before, and I still don't really know what that means, Paul. But now Paul is saying that the reason that women ought to wear head coverings is because of the angels. And if that argument would make, as if that argument would make enough sense that all the veils and head coverings would just automatically come on and the women would say, oh, the angels, I forgot about, of course, yes, all right, put on my hat. You know, let's talk about angels for a bit since we're here. Angels are ministering spirits, we're told. They are servants of God, but they are sent to serve us as well. 
The angels worship the Lord and do his, his work. They send his messages. They are also a curious bunch. Uh, our salvation, Peter tells us, is something that angels desire to look into. It seems Paul is aware of this angelic audience. He knows that the church is being watched. Angels are observing the church and seeing order, or in the case of Corinth, disorder. The presence of angels at a worship service was assumed among the Jewish communities prior to Christ. And the Christians picked up on this tradition and kind of made it their own. Angels go to church. Who knew? Angels worship with the church. Now, why are angels so concerned with the symbols of authority? Well, as far as we can figure, right, angels have had that one big sin. There were angels and then they rebelled. The distinction between angel and demon was whether or not the angels recognized and submitted to the authority of God. For the angels that are looking into our salvation, the issue of authority and submission are important in a very personal way. Now, of course, when we start talking about things like this, it's almost impossible not to cross the line into speculation, right? Like, what are the angels really thinking? I don't know. I, I don't. They never talk to me, right? So, again, we, we, need to, we need to back up a little bit from the speculative specifics that Paul is talking about to see if we can find the general principles. The symbol of authority, in their case, that's head coverings, was for the benefit of those who desire to make sense of salvation, in this case, angels. But I shouldn't have to tell you that there are plenty of non-angelic beings, plenty of people, who also desire to look into the things of our salvation. Well, how in the world can head coverings have anything to do with that? Well, what was the head covering for? It was a sign that said, I am under godly authority. I'm under the authority of my husband. The husband, with head uncovered, praying, prophesying, preaching, was a visible sign saying, I will lead. I will take you to where you need to go. I am accepting the position of authority that God has given me. And when loving authority and loving submission are paired up and put into practice, we know exactly what that looks like. It looks like Christ in his church. That's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 5. That uncomfortable passage that tells wives to submit to their husbands in all things, and where he tells husbands that they are to love their wives sacrificially. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, the symbols in this case were head coverings, but the substance, the God-given, Trinity-based, loving authority structures were, were real and are real. And these things could, could not be just swept aside based on culture. And, and those, those God-given, Trinity-based, loving authority structures could be easily, easily seen in their culture in matters of dress. Now, in our culture, again, these things don't mean the same things. A man with a cowboy hat does not look like he's abdicating authority by covering his head. I didn't know this would be the one week we have a guy with a cowboy hat here, okay? I wrote that way before you, you showed up, okay? But, but, like, no one sees that and thinks, like, oh, he's really taking a step back and letting his wife lead. You know, like, that's not what a cowboy hat means. Like, we know that. The symbols mean different things, right? A woman without a veil does not look like she is trying to take authority of leadership away from her husband or from the pastor or something. Which means that if you're going to obey the principles of this passage, it won't be in the same way as the Corinthian church. It, 
It will take some real personal reflection on your part to determine how you fit into all of this. Honestly, you might wish that you could just, you know, follow a dress code rule and be done with it. It'd be easier that way, but that's never the way it works. Your conduct speaks of Christ. Your relationships speak of Christ. They speak of your salvation. You might wish that you could just get the message across by wearing a special hat. I know I wish I could do that. But it's going to take a lot more from each one of you to speak about Christ and his gospel through your conduct and how you relate to other people. In order for you, your marriage, married people, to represent to both heaven and earth the glories of our saving God and his plan to redeem a new humanity out of this fallen race through this mysterious thing called the church, you're going to have to do more than follow a dress code. You're going to have to show in your behavior and your demeanor the things that other cultures could just say with a dress code. Now, of course, they couldn't just say it with a dress code, right? But it was, a, it, was, uh, it was clearer for them with these clear structures than it might be for you. Husbands, men, you can't just take off your hat in church and say that you're leading your family well in the things of God. You are representing Christ who died. Your lack of authority, the passive position you take in church and in the things of God, letting your wife make all those spiritual-type decisions, because she's just better at that kind of thing. That does dishonor to your head. Not just the one that's growing less hair than it used to. Your actual head, who is Christ. It does dishonor to Christ. When men abdicate the positions of leadership they were meant to employ, they dishonor Christ. Headship has the idea of authority and, and source or provision when a man ceases to provide, like headwaters of a river, right? When a man ceases to provide for his own household, Paul says he's worse than an unbeliever. Now, that can apply to material provision, and it does in its context in 1 Timothy 5, but it could equally uh, account for spiritual provision or the lack thereof. As Paul says that a husband is to wash his wife with the water of the word. That's spiritual leadership right there. When this authority is abdicated, even the angels take note. And let's be honest, everyone else can tell too. When women, and I believe it is speaking primarily of married women here, cast off the symbols of authority and show this world and the unseen world that she is an independent woman who will have her own way. She dishonors her head, her own physical head. She's making a fool of herself and should be embarrassed, but also her spiritual head, her husband. By being uncovered in that culture, she was removing her wedding ring in public, throwing it on the ground for all to see. This is embarrassing for everyone involved. But what's more is that by behaving this way, and of course the application and outworking of the rebellious heart go far beyond head coverings, this person is misrepresenting the gospel and speaking with their lives falsehoods about the nature of God and his church and the salvation that even angels wish to look into. We model with our lives the gospel. This shouldn't be a surprise but what we forget is that our salvation is in direct opposition to our natural tendency to live for ourselves or really to live independently. And Paul returns to the men in verse 11 and makes this point crystal clear. Verse 11 says, Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. 
He argues from creation again. His point is that men and women are not independent of each other, even in the Lord. Now, this is important because we really think sometimes that our identity in Christ now separates us from other relational responsibilities. It does not. It makes them more serious, actually, even more binding, because now the people you serve, you serve the Lord when you serve them. We think sometimes that since our primary allegiance is the Lord's, that we now do not have any allegiance owed to other people. This is wrong. A man who is a Christian is not independent of woman. You know how we can tell? Every Christian has a mom, that's why. You didn't get here on your own. But a married man also doesn't abdicate his responsibilities to his family just because he's now in the Lord. Now, Christians have argued this way before. Christian men have left their families to become missionaries. I'm sorry, I cannot get behind that. Uh, D.L. Moody, he said, if a man doesn't treat his wife right, I don't want to hear him talk about Christianity. Now, on the other side, flip the coin. A wife is not independent now that she is a Christian. God has designed us to depend on each other and to serve one another. The women in, women in Corinth who were doing away with the symbols of authority probably thought that they were laying claim to some sort of Christian independence that they were owed. And they were only deceiving themselves, or rather they were being deceived. They were just making the gospel more difficult to understand. What they were actually doing by removing the symbols of authority was that they were seeking to use Christ as an excuse to live for themselves. They didn't care for the authority structures as they existed, and perhaps they had reason to dislike it. I never met their husbands, I don't know. But so they removed it, and they said, there's no authority over me. That was the declaration of removing the head covering. There is no authority over me. This is not the gospel. Living for yourself, which is what you do if you remove all authority from over you, is what the gospel has saved us from. 2 Corinthians 5.15, this keeps coming up in, in the sermons here. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Christ died so that we should no longer live for ourselves. This was really the whole problem with the Christians in Corinth, that they were people who were living for themselves. We see this in their factions, their misuse of spiritual gifts, their wildly inappropriate relationships, the way they eat in demons' temples, the way they gorge themselves at church meals, and even the way they dress. The church was full of people who wanted to put themselves first. And now Paul is telling them, it's not about you. It's not about your independence. None of you are independent. But he expects some pushback on this because he's, he's met these people. And in verse 16, he says, but if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Now, uh, some people suggest that this verse means if you want to argue about head coverings, just do whatever because... This isn't a custom among the apostles or the churches. That's not a good reading. It's easy to come to that conclusion uh, in some versions, but that's not a good reading. The custom he's talking about is the one that he is correcting, the discarding of symbols of authority. Paul has appealed to their cultural sensibilities and their reason, but if they don't want to accept these things on those grounds, he wields the apostolic authority and says, your way is not the way we, the apostles, do things. It's not the way the other churches do things. This is a tricky passage. There's no way around that. But it is for us. It has been given to us for our learning, uh, to build us up even. And God is for us. And he is the one who has given us these godly leadership structures so that we can not just 
live a certain life so that we can resemble him and be formed into the image of God. He desires for us to live humbly, righteously, and godly in this present age, and he has saved us so that we would no longer have to live for ourselves because that's no way to live. Humility is not just something he commands of us. It's something he welcomes us into. And this authority structure within the church and among the people of God is not something he places over us like a curse. It is a way of relating that is based on the triune Godhead. And it is a privilege for us to operate within these structures. We can be thankful to the Lord Jesus Christ for showing us the example of what it looks like to live in godly submission. We can be thankful that we have a good God and Father who is over us. Um, but again, they're not just examples for us to follow from a distance. The triune God has invited you in to live his life with him. And that it is impossible to live that life in isolation. And it is impossible to live in relation to other people without eventually encountering these kinds of structures. And he has given us away. He has shown us away. He's invited us in to imitate the life of Christ in church, in our homes, um, and in every area of our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you. Father, we submit to you. Spirit, we are thankful for you, that you, have, you will lead us into all truth. We pray that we as a church would have our eyes fixed on you and you alone. Um, that we would eagerly, eagerly submit to you and your ways. We love you. We love the work that you are doing in us, in our church. We ask that it would be said of us, we have been faithful with what you have entrusted us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Ladies and gentlemen, you are sent. No, you're not. you got to stand. I just really want you to leave. Forgot about that part. Well, Bethany didn't walk up and stand next to me. That was the difference. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I did. I did. I needed her. Yeah. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.